Happy summer. Woohoo! Right, we're going to have a party this morning. And we are going to have a party this morning because God's Word's going to enliven our hearts. I firmly, firmly believe that to be true. And this has been our prayer for each and every one of us today. So, uh, this morning we start a brand new series in the book of Psalms. And chances are we all have some familiarity with the book of Psalms. Whether you come from a church background or not, you've probably heard it heard the Psalms quoted because the Psalms are some of the most quoted verses in all of the Bible today. And the Psalms have this power to connect with the human heart. And the reason why the Psalms have this kind of power to connect with the human heart is because they identify with any and every situation that man or woman has ever gone through in all of their lives. So, so maybe this morning you come here with joy then you'll find joy in the Psalms. Maybe this morning you come here with sorrow, you find sorrow in the Psalms. Maybe you come with regret, you find regret in the Psalms. Anxiety, depression, you find happiness, you find thanksgiving, you find rejoicing, you find peace, you find all of these emotions exhibited and found in the Psalms. The Psalms were primarily written by King David, who was a thousand years before um, Jesus Christ. But there's many authors that wrote the Psalms. And the Psalms are the hymn book of the Old Testament. It was the Psalter, is what they called it. And Jesus would have had his Psalter as a young boy when he went into the temple. And he would have sang these songs. And Jesus would lead his disciples in worship, which I really believe he did. He would have used the Psalms to do so. Jesus sang the Psalms. But here's what's really cool about the Psalms. The Psalms sing about Jesus. And that's what the Psalms over this series is going to point us to. In fact, our study of the Psalms leads us to, we're not going to go through all of the Psalms. We wouldn't be able to do that uh, in the summer, but we're going to pick about Uh, I think it's 11 Psalms, and these 11 Psalms are quoted from the book of Hebrews. And the reason why we're doing that is because this fall we're going to study the book of Hebrews, and so we figured right now we're going to study the Psalms that Hebrews mentions so that we could be pointed to Christ through the Old Testament, because all of the Bible points us to Jesus. Author Tim Keller says this about the Psalms by way of tuning our hearts to God's word. He says, we are not simply to read the Psalms, we are to be immersed in them, so that they profoundly shape how we relate to God. The Psalms are the divinely ordained way to learn devotion to God. God has made it that these Psalms would teach us how to worship Him. Don't take that for granted. Come not just to fill your mind, but allow your heart to be immersed and saturated in the beauty of the songs of Jesus. Let's pray. God, right now, as we begin this series, God, I I do pray that we are immersed in your word, that we're we're literally baptized in it. Because, Father, we, we need to go under your word right now, submit our lives to you. And we need to recognize that, God, we come under the authority of your teaching. And, God, it connects 
It connects with every aspect of our lives. So God, there's not a person in here that your word won't address. There's not a feeling in here that your word won't address today. There's not a situation that anybody's going through that your word doesn't give us hope and encouragement for. Even, God, when things look dim, God, would you speak to us by the power of your spirit? Would you show us Christ as we just sang in that song? Show us Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And the the big idea of Psalm 2, I'm going to give it to you, and then we're going to unpack it through the sermon. Here's the big idea of Psalm 2. The lordship of Jesus Christ will cause us to either rebel against him or to find our refuge in him. The lordship of Christ always, 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 without exception, does one of two things. It hardens our heart or it softens it. It causes us to reject him or to receive him. And the intention of God's word today, and I really believe that we're here today, is that we would be the recipients of his word, that we would reject his word. And we see this through the psalm as King David unpacks it. Before we do that, I want to set, a, set this up with this illustration. Have you seen the movie Despicable Me? Anybody seen that movie? You could raise your hands. It's a good movie. Despicable Me, right? I love that movie. It's one of my favorites. You have the supervillain, Gru, who wants to be the supervillains of all supervillains. And how does he want to be the supervillain of all supervillains? Well, he, he's going to steal the moon. And how's he going to steal the moon? Well, he's got these tools, these weapons at his disposal. He's got these minions of these yellow creatures that, that will do all his beckoning, and he's got a mad scientist. And so he is set up to do the most evil things in which his heart finds delight. But the one thing Gru is not prepared for is for love. You have a man who is completely unloving and bent upon himself and these three orphan girls come knocking on his door because these three orphan girls long for a father's love and they go to the supervillain Gru to look for it. Of course, Gru at first rejects it. But by the end of the movie, he has this powerful, powerful quote. He says, it's like my heart is a tooth and it's got a cavity that only can be filled with children. He's melted. This man is melted by love where he's never been melted before. And at the end of the movie, this supervillain, narcissistic, hell-bent man on himself is a loving father to these three orphan girls. And this love has changed him. And as, I, as we read Psalm 2, the reason why I mention that is because God woos us with his love. God woos us with his love. If there's anything that the person and work of Jesus Christ has done is that it woos us with his love. But it also convicts us with his truth. And so we're going to find both the conviction of God's truth and the comfort of of his love as we read this psalm today. So there's three questions that we're going to answer. Number one, 
why do the nations rage? That's the freebie given to us in Psalm one or Psalm two, verse one. Why do the nations rage? Verses one through three is going to unpack that. Uh, the second question: How does God respond? Verses 4 through 9. How does God respond? And the third question we're going to ask is, what is God's command? What is God's command? Verses 10 through 12. Starting at number 1, why do the nations rage? Why do the nations rage? There is a dilemma that we see very plainly in our world today. In fact, we just saw it last night as we had terrorists go through London in a van, and mow down people. And we have six deaths and a countless number of many others who are wounded and injured. And this is nothing new. It happens every single week. In fact, you you don't have to look very far to see that it happens every single day, is that there's very much destruction that's brought about by men, by people. And the destruction that's brought about by people that we see today isn't something new. It happened so long ago. In fact, the question that David asked 3,000 years ago is the question that we find worth asking ourselves today with the nations of North Korea and Russia. And you see it in Syria. You see it in all the places that we have had problems. But it's not just in those nations. It's even within ourselves. It's even within our country and our leadership. And the void and the vacuum of God doesn't exist just out there, but it's also in here because what is exemplified by the nations is also something that's seen from the heart of humanity. You know, the leaders are just representatives that we put in place. They represent the heart of the people. And so the nations rage because they rebel against God. And they rebel against God because they reject his leadership. And you see this in the kings and queens and princes and princesses of old, but you also see it today in our presidents and prime ministers that all have rejected God and his leadership. And we see this really clearly as we move to verse 2 where David says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now I think in this passage I want us to see not that the kings and kingdoms seek power for themselves, but the way that kings and kingdoms seek power for themselves is a rejection of God. And not simply the rejection of, of God, but the rejection of of God's anointed. There's some context to this passage that I think is helpful. And there's a lot of mystery surrounding it based upon what is the context by which David the psalmist wrote this passage. There's two possibilities. These are both likely possibilities. We don't know which one exists. We don't even know if they really exist, but these are probably the most likely contextual, meaning surrounding circumstance options that we could look at. Number one, this psalm was written as a coronation. Meaning that when kings were established, the, the king um, would, would have this as a part of the liturgy or the ceremony of their taking leadership of Israel. And so it might have been that which was read or sung over in the time of David's coronation or Solomon's coronation or any of the kings of Israel's coronation to declare their allegiance to the Lord above all. Or, it also may have been when David was experiencing the rage 
of the nations himself because he was the anointed that God had chosen to rule over Israel at that time. And so to oppose David and his rule was to oppose the rule of God. And so David wrote this in response to the nation's rejection of God's rule in his time. So it's one of those two likely possibilities. So it's important to see that this psalm has has a grounding, if you will, in the time period, and it speaks to some of the surrounding issues going on, but, but it's also important to see that the psalm is not completely fulfilled in that time and in that place, so the psalm points forward. And here's why it's important to see that, because the anointed one is not David overall. The, and, and how do we know that? Well, well God never gave David, the nations, is his inheritance, as it says later on. It wasn't David's wrath and fury that brought destruction, the foes of God. And so the Psalms don't find their fulfillment in David, or not even in the Davidic dynasty, or the Davidic rule that would happen through Solomon later on. That was a beautiful time in the people of Israel. In the nation of Israel. In fact, they look towards that time of of King David's rule as a time of joy, as a time of jubilee, as a time of glee, because his rule was good. He wasn't perfect. David was not perfect by anyone's stretch of an imagination. But this psalm points to one who is greater than David, who's more pure than David, more perfect than David could ever be. And finds its fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And how do we know that? Well, if you look in the book of Acts, you see this same verse, verse 2, repeated in chapter 4 of verse Acts. Or chapter, well, that was weird. Chapter 4 of Acts. There we go, not verse Acts. Um, and, and, and we see the verse repeated and fall after what Peter says in the book of Acts. He says, For truly in this city, Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, God's anointed, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, among the Gentiles in all the peoples of Israel. Those are the ones that counsel and conspire together. And what are they doing? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So, this psalm tells us two things. Number one, the one who is rejected is specifically Jesus. Not generally God. Not generically God. You can go and talk about God in a lot of places and you won't face opposition. You won't face, you won't face persecution in fact, most of the world agrees with you when you talk about God because there's very few people, even though it's a growing amount of people in our world today, it's still a slim margin that are atheists or agnostics. Most people believe in a higher power. Where you will find much rejection or opposition against God is in God's anointed one, who is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. When you talk about Jesus, that's when people start to, to, to close their ears or they start to get offended Or they start to say, who says? Or they start to threaten you, or they start to feel threatened. Because Jesus is the chosen king. He is the one that God has established. And so Pontius Pilate is an example of someone who looked Jesus in the face 
and rejected him. Herod, before Jesus was even born, had sought to see him slaughtered. The Jews, the Israelites of their day, rejected Jesus by claiming obedience to the law as the way for salvation, not realizing that the huge hole in their heart was what caused them to be separated from God. And even the Gentiles rejected God by wanting to live their own way. Those were those who rejected God. It represents all humanity rejecting God. You remember when Jesus was crucified and Pontius Pilate held out before the crowd that day. This was not just the leaders and rulers of the time. This was before the crowd that was there. And he held out an an option. He wanted to wash his hands of the situation, Pontius Pilate did. He didn't want to be responsible for what took place. And so he said, he said, it's customary on this day to let uh, a, a prisoner go free. And so here's Jesus and here's Barabbas. Which one do you want to go free? Do you want Jesus to go free or do you want Barabbas to go free? And the crowd chose Barabbas. Why? Because Barabbas didn't lay claim to their heart. Only Jesus did. And as vile as a criminal that Barabbas was, it was Jesus who posed the greatest threat. Listen, do you know why Jesus was crucified? Because he was a threat. They don't crucify good teachers. They don't crucify good examples. They don't crucify people of good morals which is something that Jesus was. But Jesus didn't claim just to be a good moral teacher. He didn't just come to be an example. He came to be Savior and Lord. And so they crucified him because he threatened them. He threatened their leadership of their own lives. This is the way it was in the garden with Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve rejected God by sinning, And the rejection of God took place not when they ate of that fruit, but when they determined in their heart that they no longer wanted to be held in shackles by God. Because that's what it felt like. And that's what we see continuing on in the passage in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The imagery here is one of chains holding them down and a desire to be free from the chains. But those don't adequately express really what was taking place there. The the words here actually are, are, are more fitting to be, in some translations, not chains, but a yoke over their shoulders and a harness over them. They no longer wanted to be harnessed by God or under God's control. But Peter takes that verse and says, everything that has taken place against Jesus, everything that has taken place against our, from our opposition to God has taken place in the foreknowledge of God. In fact, God predestined it. He planned it from the foundations of the world, that man's rebellion would be used against him, or that God would save man because of their rebellion through his anointed one, Jesus Christ. T. 
Tim Keller says, Sin shrugs at God. Its essence is failing to believe, not that he exists, but that he matters. This attitude is deadly. Sin shrugs at God. Listen, most of the time we sin, it's not because we don't believe that God exists. It's because we don't think he matters. Think, think about this in terms of marriage. If you've, if you've known someone or, or you've experienced someone who has committed adultery, and, and, and it's not that that person believed that they weren't married, right? It was they believed that their marriage didn't matter. And this is what it is with us. This is why we're idolatrous. Because it's not that we don't believe that God exists. It's that we don't believe that God matters. We don't believe he matters in our marriage. We don't believe he matters with our money. We don't believe he matters in our families. We don't believe he matters in our dating relationship. We don't believe he matters in some of these things. And if we don't believe that God matters, we will shrug him off. We will shrug him off. And we will do what we want to do. Because in effect, it's God that doesn't matter in me that matters most. Abraham Kuyper says... There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! There's not any part of our lives, there's not any part of human existence that God doesn't lay claim to. And sin is a simple rejection of that truth. So what's God's response? What's God's response to the rebellion of the nations, to the rebellion of mankind? Verses 4 through 9. Psalm 2, 4. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. What is God doing with man's rebellion? He's not freaking out. He's not calling a council together. He's not calling all the angels and saying, hey guys, what do you think I should do about this? He's not phoning any of you or me. He's sitting on his throne. He doesn't even get up off of his throne. What is he doing? He's laughing. He's laughing. Because he knows that this opposition is nothing. He knows this opposition is not a threat to him. He knows this opposition will only lead in destruction. It was like when my son turned two. Actually, all my kids turned two. You know the terrible twos, right? Somehow these kids think they're they're the parents at two years old. I don't know what the deal is, but as soon as they turn two, maybe it happened from when they were three months for you, and maybe it it does happen. But as soon as they turn two, it was just like they think they're the parents and we're the kids. And so they get to control us. And so you start to realize this in parenting and you think, man, I got to change some ways because they're really being the boss and I'm not. So something's got to change here. So we began to discipline a little bit more because we wanted our kids to realize that we're the parents and you're the kids. And so I remember really distinctly disciplining my son. I looked at him in the face and I said, you don't do that. And I spanked him. And my son looked at me in the face with a red beating eyes and he said, you don't do that. And he spanked me. (laughs) And you know what I did? I laughed. 
because he has no idea that I'm the one in control. And this is God's response to us. He laughs at that. He laughs at that. And he holds those who oppose him in derision. It says that he comes with terrible anger and wrath at those who oppose him. And he says also, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. By the way, verse 7 is the verse we find quoted in Hebrews. I tell of the decree. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, God had it before eternity passed. That he was sent his son. To bring judgment or refuge for all of humanity. That in God's response to rebellion... You would either come under his judgment or you would come under his grace. And how would it happen? Well, it would happen through his begotten son. It would happen through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The one who is God the Son. From the foundations of the world. That God would be the one to make this rebellion right. Or God would be the one that would bring an end to it. And he says of this Messiah, this anointed son, that I will make the nations your heritage. That's why we see in the book of Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And surely I'll be with you always to the very end of age. That the Messiah brings his reign and rule through the spreading of His glory through His saints who have been redeemed. And He will draw to Himself a people of every tribe and nation and tongue. And the way that God will do that is not by cherry-picking a nation over here, cherry-picking a nation over here, or saying, this is Israel and they are mine. No, the way that God will do it is He'll do it through His Son, And the reason that you can be God's is that God gives you His Son. And the only reason that we can say we are God's, who who we are like the nations that have rebelled against Him, we have turned aside, following our own way. And the only reason that we can be brought into Him is because we are brought in by the Son who receives us. Listen, maybe you grew up Methodist, maybe you grew up Catholic, maybe you've been going to church all your life, maybe you served on the worship team, maybe you have all this church history or all these things that you've done. Let me tell you something, none of that saves you. Only Jesus saves you. And it's through the Son that we find salvation, and it's through the Son that we find forgiveness. Nothing that we do. There is nothing that can right the wrongs of our rebellion. In our own selves, there is nothing that we can do. And this is a message of grace. Because this message of grace tells us that there's something that He has done. There's two breaking that's, that takes place if you read this. As you go, if you look at chapter 2, verse 9, it says, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's 
vessel. So, so that's basically saying that we're very fragile and we can be broken. And the breaking that takes place can happen in one of two ways. One, we can be broken mercifully. You will be broken. You can be broken mercifully. This means that our pride is broken and our hearts are humbled. You can be broken mercifully by acknowledging your sin and shortcomings and crying out for your need of a Savior. Not like the nations who say we want no part of you, but saying, God, I need you, and I need you more than anything else. That's grace. That's a merciful breaking. And I'm telling you, if that merciful breaking doesn't happen to us, then you don't know the Son. If you're not broken, if you're not humbled, if you're not brought low, you will never be brought high. Because God brings us low in order that we may be brought high. I plead with you. Go through this merciful breaking. And we see it in John 3.16. How does he do it? Well, like Gru, who's broken by love, so are we. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We're broken by the Son, by the love of the Son, by the Son that draws in the nations as an inheritance or heritage to himself. Or, if you're not broken mercifully, you will be broken terribly. There's a terrible breaking. And the terrible breaking is the just punishment from a heart that says, me first. There's a just punishment that will endure should we be a part of the terrible breaking. I mean, God is right to give us this punishment from a heart that says, me first, all the time. It's eternal damnation. It means that we are broken in the anger and wrath of God in hell. Not, not a very popular thing to talk about today. This is why it's not really easy to talk about Jesus all the time because those two options are for everybody. You're either going to be broken by God's mercy or you're going to be broken by his terrible judgment. But listen, we can avoid it all we want and it doesn't make it not true. We could try to push it under the rug and say it doesn't exist, but that doesn't make it all true. In fact, if we don't talk about it, we're not being merciful and loving. Friends, understand that heaven is going to be so good. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, you know, I thought this would be better. There's nobody that's going to get to heaven and say that. Nobody. You're you're not going to have any, there's not going to be any suggestion box because there's no suggestion that you could be made, make to make heaven better than it already is. Right? Now, if that's true of heaven, the reverse is true of hell. Nobody's going to get to heaven and say, this isn't so bad. I honestly thought the fires would be hotter. They got hot dogs and marshmallows here. No, nobody's going to get to hell and think this could be worse. It's going to be more terrible than you can imagine times infinity. And that means something. That means that every person is made for eternity and eternal life will be lived in one place in the heaven according to the majesty of Jesus or in hell in accordance with a me first life. What's your choice? The choice is the son. And the son's not just a get out of hell free card. 
You don't make the choice in Jesus and say, I just want to get out of hell, so I'm going to receive him. No. It means that your heart is captivated by him. This is why the psalmist continues and says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Just like queens and kings were kissed on the ring according to their rule and reign. Kiss the Son because He is the leader. He's the anointed one of God. Declare your allegiance to Him because know that He first kissed you. He was the first one that extended love to you. It's not like we're coming to Him and this is a new thing for God. No, no. We would never do that unless God came to us first and said, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And so God extends the olive branch of love to you first so that you can kiss the Son. So that you could rejoice in Him. He bears the cross for us because He's the one that bears that terrible judgment that we deserve. You want to look at the terrible judgment of God? Look at it upon the cross of Christ. You know, this isn't God just kind of creating some kind of magic trick and saying it's all gone. No, no. It came at great cost. I would never sacrifice my son for anything. I don't care how deeply I love him or I love it. But for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved that he gave his son Jesus Christ, to bear the terrible judgment of God upon that cross, upon that tree. It's as if the psalmist is saying, listen, don't be a fool. Be wise. Hear what I'm saying. This is the command of God, by the way. The command of God is that you would receive him, that you would kiss the son, that you would rejoice in the Lord Without, with trembling, realizing that this God who saved you is the God who could have crushed you. That you would serve him with fear. You would say, God, my life belongs to you. I've been bought with a price. And the price that has been paid has been the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ. This is the beauty of the cross. You're probably all familiar with the story of Noah and the ark. And I love the story of Noah and the ark because in the story you see that God is both the storm and the refuge for Noah and his family. God is both the storm and the refuge for Noah and his family. And and what God does in the story of Noah and the ark is that God rains down the water of his judgment upon the people that rebel against him. But that same water that crushes or floods and kills those who reject God is the same water that rises up the ark to ride on top of the waters. The ark by which God built. God commanded Noah to build the ark. I mean, I could imagine Noah out there day after day. Really, God? I mean, you know, this little drought that we've gone through the last few months is nothing in comparison to the drought they were going through in that day. God, I'm building an ark. Just watch. You're building this because I am your refuge. And Noah preached repent. 
And he said the judgment of the Lord is coming and that God is the refuge. And God's refuge was the ark. And the ark that they went into was the ark that rose above the waters of God's judgment and led them into eternal life. This is why we do baptisms. Because it means that you went under the water of God's judgment and you came out alive because Christ is risen. Oh, he is risen indeed. Amen? Amen. Amen. Psalm 1, verse 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Nobody can fulfill that psalm perfectly except Jesus. The psalmist had Jesus in mind in both the beginning of Psalm 1 and the end of Psalm 2 because Jesus is the one who perfectly obeys that command and Jesus is the one that perfectly becomes the refuge for those who don't. Will you be the refuge? Will you go to Christ as your refuge in the storm? I want to close in asking us this question. And the question is one that I think we have to deeply look at in our lives. We don't just answer this question with our mouths, but we have to ask it of our lives. Can Jesus Christ only be your Savior and not be your Lord? Can we only accept Jesus Christ as Savior and not accept Him as Lord? Meaning, can we only accept Jesus Christ as our get out of hell free card and that's enough because we say my sins are forgiven or can we accept Jesus as Lord or must we accept Jesus as Lord and say every part of my life belongs to you now I'm going to obey everything that you say because I am totally and completely yours that's what Jesus Christ did he didn't die for half of us. He died for all of us. And unless you believe that, you're not born again. May we all be born again by the receiving of Jesus and his grace today. And here's the deal for each of us today. You don't have to go home and say with a hard heart, man, that was hard. Man, he said, I'm not a Christian. No, no, no. You can repent right now. Right now, you can turn and walk in repentance. Why? Because blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Right now, Jesus can be our refuge. Let's kiss the sun here together. As we receive communion, that's what we're doing. We're saying, Jesus, you've saved me. You've made me your own. Now I'm going to follow you. If you need help with that this morning, sit in your chairs and pray the prayer. I need help with that. God, help me. I'm doing it my own way and it's not working out. God, help me. I need your forgiveness because I haven't fully been changed by your love. This isn't some kind of get quick, get, get, get better quick scheme here today. No, this is God's regenerating work in your heart, establishing you in Him. The only way that we are going to know that we are the Lord's is that the Lord makes it known that we are His. And so God, say, make it known. Move in my heart. Work in me. 
in the only ways that you can. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that your work on the cross is sufficient. We thank you that your grace is complete. We thank you that, God, right now you are wooing us by your love. God, while it's a fearful thing to look into your fiery eyes, it is also a blessing. Because we know that in those eyes of fire are the eyes of love. The eyes that say, come to me all who are weary. Come to me you who need rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So God, we come and we confess. We need you. Oh, we need you. Every hour I need you. Every day. Every moment. And we say, Lord, you've not just saved us. But God, you've made us who we are. And we belong to you. In Jesus' name. Church says, amen.